It's uh, great to uh, be here with you this evening to open up God's Word together. Uh, thanks, Kathy, for reading to us from Mark's Gospel uh, this evening, particularly as we continue our series, uh, Just Jesus, as we look at who Jesus is and what he's come to do in the Gospel of Mark. And so hopefully uh, you've been reading it throughout the week. Uh, hopefully you've got questions. And hopefully tonight as we open God's Word together, we'll be encouraged as we hear God speak to us in it. I'm going to pray, ask God to help us as we uh, look at his word together tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your goodness and love of us. We thank you that you are a God who continues to make yourself known to us. And you do that supremely, Father, through your word and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us a greater understanding of him, of your purposes, uh, as they uh, reveal to us in your word tonight. Uh, open our hearts to hear and understand so that we might trust you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, let me just take you back a little bit to uh, the good old Rocky movies with Sylvester Stallone. They're fairly dated now, a little bit like myself, really. Uh, but if I take you back to this uh, triumph, if you like, of cinematography, this great piece of art, uh, Rocky, uh, if you even know him, uh, was the classic down and out who turns the tables and becomes the hero. Uh, in one of his first fights, uh, Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion, uh, is taking an absolute beating. Uh, round after round, the world champion is just pounding him and he just keeps taking it, even though he can hardly stand up. Uh, but it's all part of his plan. He keeps getting hit and every punch that the champ flow, uh, throws uh, makes him tighter and tighter. And just when you think uh, Rocky can't absorb any more punishment, he starts throwing punches back at the champ who is so tired uh, he can't properly defend himself. And eventually, with all the drama involved, Rocky Balboa knocks out the world champion and takes his crown. Uh, now, despite the, the predictability of that kind of movie, uh, it was, if you like, a classic uh, tale of the tables being turned. Not only the lowly-ranked amateur boxer, boxer beating the world champion, but seemingly almost knocked out himself, most of the crowd thinking that he's a loser, only to come back and to win the fight. Well, can I just say that the way that the gospel writer Mark tells us the story about Jesus, uh, I think there are a few similarities, uh, many unsimilarities, but some similarities as well. Now, it's a bit of a, a pun, I think, on his literal turning of the tables in, later on in chapter 11, but Jesus here is the one who turns the tables on what we expect. Uh, most people in our world have an opinion about Jesus. Um, most aren't Christians but they still have an opinion about him. And every opinion that they hold about him is making some kind of judgment about him. For instance, some people will say that they will only believe in Jesus, uh, or believe that he is Lord in some way, if you can prove that it's reasonable and rational to do so. Some people think he's kind of irrelevant to modern day life. We don't really need someone like a Jesus. Uh, they judge him as not worth either their time nor their effort. Others make judgments about Jesus with uh, very little information except their preconceived ideas and having not really looked into it very much at all. Uh, Muslims, for example, think that he's a prophet. All sorts of people make all sorts of judgments about Jesus. Well, tonight in chapters 11 and 12 of Mark's Gospel, uh, we're going to see three days of action. Uh, this is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. And as Jesus interacts with people, we begin to see that judging Jesus, 
can be a dangerous business. Uh, he has a habit of turning the tables and putting his accusers in the dock. Now, right from chapter 1 of Mark, he has been telling us uh, that this gospel of his is about Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, same word, the King of the Jews, that's what it means. The one who was coming to bring salvation and to establish the kingdom of God. And, and so all the way through the gospel of Mark, I know we've kicked it off from chapter 8, but if we've read through the first part of chapter Mark, we've seen Jesus doing things that point to him being the Messiah. He healed the sick, cast out demons. He's shown his control over nature and claimed to forgive people of their sins. And then finally, we've seen at the beginning of our series in chapter 8, his disciples get it. He, this, this Jesus is Israel's king, their Messiah. And where did Israel expect their king to establish his rule? Well, in Jerusalem, the capital city where God's temple stood. And in Mark chapter 11, the king arrives in Jerusalem. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 11, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is almost over. Uh, Jesus, his disciples, and uh, all the crowds who had kind of joined him on the way are nearly there. All the events that, we've read about, that we read about from now on actually happen in Jerusalem. And now this is the last week of Jesus' life, uh, and this is day one. The king is coming. Now given this is such a big, big occasion, it's interesting what Mark actually takes his time to tell us here. Uh, he spends most of his time telling us how Jesus arranged to ride a colt or a, a young donkey the last part of the way up to Jerusalem. The question is, uh, why does Mark bother telling us all this detail? I mean, surely it wasn't just to let us know that Jesus was tired after his long journey and he just couldn't walk any further. You know, one of the things I like about uh, the internet is that you can log on to the Bureau of Meteor Meteorology and you can watch what the weather is doing. Uh, you can watch the clouds and the rain and the storms kind of moving across the screen. Uh, and you can see where they're heading. You can see the areas that are likely to get dumped on. And the different colours that, that move across your screen actually tell you how heavy the rain is. And so where it's red, uh, you know that's where it's bucketing down. And you also know who's kind of likely to get it next. And so when you hear a forecast of severe storms for Sydney, you can go to their website and you can actually see them coming. And it's a sign that the promised storms have arrived. You can even get ready for them. And Mark tells us about Jesus riding the colt because it was a sign that what has been promised has arrived. We need to actually have a look at um, some Old Testament passages so as to understand the meaning of what Jesus is doing. Uh, have a look on your screen at a verse from Zechariah uh, chapter 9 in the Old Testament. So Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In several hundred years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah prophesied, foretold, that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem riding on a colt. And so it's, it's no freakish coincidence that Jesus arrives and enters Jerusalem in this particular way. 
and it's no kind of incidental side issue that Mark records in such detail here. It was a sign that what God had promised to Israel was happening. Their king was coming to establish his kingdom. Jesus was fulfilling scripture. Now Jesus doesn't say he is the Messiah, but he clearly does what the Messiah was expected to do. His actions actually give away who he is. And even if those inside Jerusalem didn't recognize him, uh, in one sense, let's face it, because you know, they'd put him, they were going to put him to death a few days later, but it does seem, at least I think, that there were those who were traveling with him who seemed to understand this to some degree. Verse 8 there of chapter 11 says that they were laying their coats and palm branches on the ground in front of him. And they were shouting out in the words of another Old Testament passage, Psalm 118. Uh, notice it there. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna just means save us, which is exactly what the Messiah was expected to do. Even if not in the triumphant way that his followers were expecting here. Jesus is saying... Here I am, O Jerusalem. I am your king. Receive me. Well, the first day finishes quietly, really, with Jesus surveying the temple, but it's only the quiet before the storm that is about to erupt on day two. Uh, can I say it's interesting and important, I think, uh, to think about, I, th I reckon, that as Christians we know that Jesus will return one day. What will he find when he comes? How will he find us, his people? Will he be pleased with what he sees? Uh, are we ready for him to turn up tonight? Would you be ready to welcome him? Or would you be a bit, a bit embarrassed? What would he find if he turned up tonight? Would he find you really thankful that he's your friend and rejoicing in your relationship with him? Would he find you living each day with him as your king? And would he find you fleeing from sin because you know it doesn't please him and it hurts others? Would he find you reading his word? Would he find you praying to his Father in heaven? Would he find you obeying and honouring your father and mother? Would he find you loving and caring for others, especially your fellow Christians? Would he find you standing up for him in the workplace or at school or university? Or would he... Would he find you avoiding talking about him? Would he find you ashamed of him? Would he find that you are a little neglectful of your relationship with him? Would he find you building your own kingdom here on earth? Doing your own thing, looking out for yourself and no one else? Storing up treasures on earth rather than in heaven? You know, how would King Jesus find you if he turned up here tonight? When Jesus turned up in Jerusalem, he didn't find it as it should have been. His people weren't ready for him. And so instead of finding his people living holy lives, honouring their God, loving and serving each other, in, instead of finding a place of justice and righteousness and faithfulness, what he found was a ruined kingdom. And the very place that should have been upholding those characteristics was the place that was deeply entrenched in their rebellion and unrighteousness. And so Jesus comes to the temple, the place of God's throne, and he's confronted by wickedness. Instead of it being a house of prayer to all nations, 
God's own people and worse, the rulers of God's people had made it into a den of robbers, verse 17 says. What had happened was that the chief priest, Caiaphas, had decided to make money out of the thousands of pilgrims who made the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover each year. Uh, and because people travelled such a long way, uh, they couldn't bring their sheep to sacrifice with them. And so they would buy lambs and birds to sacrifice at Passover. And they'd exchange foreign currency to pay the temple tax. And so Caiaphas had allowed the outer court of the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews, to, to become a marketplace and completely disregard the purpose that God had designated it for. A house of prayer for all people or for people of all nations. This outer court was a place where the Gentiles could come to pray, to seek God. It was an expression, if you like, of God's intention to reach out to men and women and boys and girls of every nation, not simply the Jews. That God's own people had sold him out. They sold the Gentiles out for the sake of profit. And so Jesus, in his anger and zeal for God's honour and glory, turns the marketplace upside down. Now, the chief priests actually ought to have been ought to have had the same response as Jesus did because all Jesus was doing was upholding the law of God and his honour. That was their job. But instead, they want to destroy Jesus, just as Jesus said they would. Why? Well, because they were the ones responsible for turning God's house into a den of robbers and Jesus had exposed their corruption. However, you've probably noticed that, the clearing, that clearing the temple is not the only event that happens there on day two. Because I don't know if you noticed, but there's a, there's a strange story there in verses 12 to 14 about Jesus cursing a fig tree. Uh, then it pops up again at the beginning of day three in verses 20 to 21 with the fig tree all withered and dead. Now, when you first read it, it kind of seems quite bizarre. Why would Jesus do it? What was going on? Why, would, why was Mark told us about it? Well, like a lot of things in Mark, you need to understand it from its Old Testament background. And we also, we're also helped by seeing where Mark places it within his story. Now, you'll notice that Mark has put this particular incident, uh, like two pieces of bread, around the cleansing of the temple. Jesus looks for fruit on the first day. He looks for fruit from, from a fig tree that's in leaf, that looks healthy, but it has none, and he curses it. Now, you might be aware that a fig tree was a well-known symbol used in the Old Testament for Israel. Now, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, what he finds is the, the grandeur of the temple and uh, all of its religious practices, but actually bearing no fruit for God. Jerusalem was barren, just like the fig tree. It's a den of robbers. Corruption is rampant. They're unprepared for his arrival. And the leaders are singled out as the cause of the ruin in Israel and as the focus of Jesus' anger. However, when Jesus arrives at the temple on day three, the big guns are out after him. Uh, the religious leaders of Israel want to question his authority to do and to say the things that he had done the day before. Who is he? What gives him the right? Well, look at what happens from verse 27 there. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, 
the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, a little while ago now, the iconic sales of the Sydney Opera House had emblazoned across them in big red letters, no war. It was actually the protest of two men directed at the Australian government of the time uh, for going to war against Iraq. But no matter the rightness or the wrongness of the sentiment, they actually had no authority to express it the way they did. They were still judged as guilty and faced the penalty of their actions. And you see, no matter the, the rightness or wrongness of Jesus' sentiment, the religious authorities want to know what gave Jesus the right to do what he had done the day before. And so the question attacks his authority and essentially seeks to put him on trial for his behaviour. But have a look at the way that Jesus responds. He doesn't try and offer a defence for his behaviour. He actually answers them with a question in verse 29. Have a look at it there. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Instead of Jesus being on trial, all of a sudden the tables have been turned and the leaders are in the hot seat. Now, Jesus' question about John the Baptist has put them in an impossible position. Uh, they're afraid of the crowds who are listening uh, and the only option they've really got left is to say they don't know. At best, they're lo left looking foolish, but at worst, the judges have become the judged. And not only did they not recognise the forerunner to Christ who announced his arrival, but they have, rec they have not rec recognised their own Messiah, who John the Baptist prepared the way for. And so because they won't answer him, neither will Jesus answer them. But he doesn't leave it there. Rather, he actually goes on to tell a parable uh, that they realised was about them in chapter 12. You see at the beginning of chapter 12 there. Uh, the religious leaders in this parable are likened to tenants in a vineyard. Uh, they enjoy its fruit, but when the owner uh, sends his servants to collect some of the profits, some they bash, others they even kill. Until finally the owner sends his son. But they kill him as well, thinking that they'll get his inheritance. Now Jesus is clearly the son whom they will kill. But what will be the outcome of that? Well, we see it there in verse 9 of chapter 12. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. See, Israel's leaders come judging Jesus, but he turns the table on them and puts them in the hot seat. And yet we still have ringing in our ears, don't we? Jesus' predictions from last week and the last few weeks in chapters 8 to 10, where Jesus talks about his suffering and death. And it's even clear in this parable that it's these religious leaders that will eventually persecute and kill him. And yet the irony is that by judging Jesus the way they are, 
it will lead to them being the ones who are in reality judged. The owner of the vineyard will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's not Jesus who is on trial here. It's those who are making wrong judgments about Jesus who will in actual fact be judged. Now I take it the fact that you're tuned in here tonight is at least an indication that you've judged Jesus to be who he claimed to be. Or at least you're interested in finding out who he really is so that you might make up your mind about him. But I know that for many of you, you will see him as the Christ, as God's Messiah, as your Saviour and your Lord. And if that's you, you're in a minority. And it can be hard to be in a minority. Most people in our city haven't come to, be, come to the same conclusions about Jesus as you have. You know, I love the story of America's greatest ever president. He was a, a backward and shy boy who lost his mum when he was nine years old. At 22, uh, he lost his job as a store clerk. He wanted to go to law school, but his education was judged as not being good enough. At 28, he asked his girlfriend of four years to marry him. She said no. After being rejected on two previous occasions, he was finally elected to Congress on his third try. And two years later, he ran for re-election, but was voted out. About the same time, he had a nervous breakdown. At 42, he was rejected for land officer. At 45, he ran for the Senate and lost. Two years later, he was defeated for nomination for vice president. At 49, he ran for Senate again and was rejected again. And add to this an endless barrage of criticism, misunderstanding, uh, ugly and false rumours and deep periods of depression and you realise that it was no wonder that he was snubbed by his peers and despised by multitudes. Hardly the envy of his day. At 51, however, he was elected President of the United States. But in his second term in office, he, uh, his time was cut short by his assassination. As he lay dying in a little room across from the place where he was shot, a former detractor, Edward Stanton, spoke this fitting tribute. He said, There lies the most perfect ruler of men the world has ever seen. And now he belongs to the ages. That president, of course, was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was criticised by the leaders of society. He was misunderstood by the masses. He was the victim of false and ugly rumours, and so he was snubbed and despised by the majority for much of his life. But he's now widely seen as the greatest leader the world has ever known. Now, I don't know about you, but it reminds me a little bit about how the world, both then and now, sees Jesus. He continues to be criticised. He remains misunderstood by many. The false and ugly rumours about him still haven't stopped. And so he continues to be snubbed by the majority. But that's not the way the story ends. The first time Jesus came to his kingdom, his people weren't ready to receive him. He came and found a kingdom in ruins because of sin. And Jesus had his small band of followers then too, but the majority snubbed him. But it was those who judged him wrongly who have become those who will be judged. And people can say and do whatever they want about Jesus. 
We shouldn't be worried about that. We shouldn't be fearful of what others think about our judgment of Jesus. Because one day Jesus will come to his kingdom again. Will you be ready? Because the one you are dealing with is the greatest leader this universe has ever known. And people can reject him if they want. Although we pray that they won't. But as God himself says in verse 10, this stone, that is Jesus, the, builders, this, the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Well, friends, every time we hear what Jesus has done for us, there is a chance for us to turn back to him. The word that, that Christians use is the word repent, which just means turn around. And I'm going to pray a prayer of confession as we conclude uh, this part of our meeting tonight. And it's a chance for you to reflect on uh, your response to Jesus. You may be a believer, you may not be a believer. But I'm going to invite you, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession, confessing our sins. And if you would like to, to say amen to that prayer, then God hears you. He really knows our hearts and he'll respond uh, to you as you, you put your trust in him. So let me pray as I lead us uh, in this prayer of confession. And if you want to say amen and make it your prayer, then please do that. But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you. We have done what is evil in your sight. We are sorry and we repent. We turn away from our sin. Please have mercy on us according to your incredible love for us. And wash away our wrongdoing. Cleanse us from our sin. Give us a right spirit within us. And restore us to the joy of your salvation. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.